0: This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are talking about grapes. You know, they make wine out of grapes.
1: Yes, they do. Indeed they do. Yeah.
0: You know, I understand it's pretty hard, too.
1: Yeah, that's why we're doing this instead of that. That's
0: exactly right. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're going to talk a bit about grapes and vineyards. We have some listener questions that, of all things, question our answers. (laughs) I'm not, (laughs) not saying I blame them. Our truly horrible wine writing is especially horrible. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And today we're going to try to tell you something useful about vineyards and growing grapes. And as both our loyal listeners know... Wait a minute. We're up to three now, aren't we? I think that third person was provisional. Not, oh, I'm not oh, sure he came oh, back. Not your wife. No, no, no. She's definitely not part of the list. She knows better. <laughs> both of our wives don't, <laughs> they had, don't, they don't, they don't listen them. to us un, under any circumstances. That's right. In any case, as all two or three of our listeners know... We say you don't have to know how to make a piano to enjoy a concert, and you can love wine without knowing anything about vineyards and winemaking.
1: We've been accused of knowing nothing about vineyards and winemaking, and I think Often. that's fairly yeah, accurate. Yeah.
0: But we also think that it's fun to know a little bit, and so that's what we're doing today. We're going to tell you some stuff that we think is fun, and let's start digging around.
1: I thought, no puns. Yeah, you're right. Leave the digs out.
0: So let's talk about where we are. We're in the early part of spring, although it's not necessarily the early part of bud break anymore, is it? Well,
1: crazy year this year because, of course, this has been a warm, dry year. And so the vines have budded out and we're ahead of schedule. And that's a little bit of a concern because, of course, it can freeze in California, at least, through early May. And we're going to be – there are some vineyard owners that are going to be lying in their beds worrying about waiting for those frost alarms to go off because if they freeze – Then they got some, they got the whole vineyard takes a giant step backward in time. So,
0: yeah, and you know, this has been precisely the kind of wacky year where, um, you know, you just can't predict weather. It's well, I'm
1: I'm reminded of a year, a few years ago, I was with uh, one of the best grape growers in the world who happens to be in Napa Valley, and somebody asked him how that current year compared to a normal year, and he got this really funny look on his face, and he said, what normal year? What is a normal yeah, year? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, every year is a whole new adventure we, for these guys.
0: Yeah, we, we need to stop and make this point now and often, which is that, you know, uh, growing grapes is farming and farming is really hard work. And, and yes, risky. it is. It is yep. risky. You know, and I agree. It's a guy who's covered food for a lot of years as well as the wine industry. And, and covered yourself in food. I walked and roll <laughs> in my dinner. It's how I know I like it. Um, but uh you know, you, you realize how difficult a life it is being a farmer. You just you know, never yep. mind the amount of work, you are always, always on edge. There's really no You're, time of year. Every, where every you can morning relax. you get up
1: and you look at the weather report yeah. in a way that you and I don't, because all we have to worry about is whether we're wouldn't carrying a sweater or not. Um
0: I, I sometimes I think about a hat.
1: Hat. Yeah. So well. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, battling frost because it is kind of a for me. It's always been a little fascinating how they do it. Yep. Um, I mean, one of the things. Now, let's let's start with my most fun one, which is the the, the counterintuitive notion of using sprinklers, right, to keep grapes yep. from freezing. Yeah. So when you it, spray
1: them with water, when the, wine, the water freezes and the grapes don't.
0: Yeah. And what happens as long as you keep, i mean, I had this described to me, I won't try to use the actual scientific terms because I don't know them. But um, what's happening as you sprinkle the grapes and as the water is freezing, when
1: water turns to ice, it actually gives off a small amount of energy. Well, imagine, water is liquid, which means it's not frozen. I've heard that. In order to freeze, it has to get colder, which means that heat has to go somewhere. Right. Well, if the heat goes somewhere in when it's covered the grapevine, it actually goes into the vine. The water freezes. The heat goes into the vine, and the vine does not freeze. It works pretty well until you get too far below zero. B- below, below freezing, I've heard freezing. down
0: to about 28 is, right. is where I think it gets I've been colder told. than yeah. that.
1: Then the whole thing just freezes into a solid block of ice, and you have a new centerpiece for your daughter's wedding. Right. And
0: you have to keep you keep the sprinklers on. It's not just coating them with water once. You have to. No, keep no. The the, the, yeah. what, what protects so the grapes is, the, is the, not
1: the ice. It's, it's the it's, change. It's the water changing into ice. So you have to keep putting water on. Them yeah. Until all the ice is gone. Yeah,
0: it is. It's a, it's crazy, and it only works obviously in areas where they have enough water, and in years when they have enough water. So that's another right. another that's big another challenge ner- with the drought. Y- yeah. Yep. Uh, another thing they use the fans. So you know, you, if you drive through a lot of wine regions, you see these big giant fans up yep. on these giant poles. Yep. And and that's uh, they're dealing with the inversion layer. Right. There. These are egg beaters.
1: They're, they're egg giant be- egg beaters. Right. Think of the think they put of the eggs valley. The vineyards? No, but think of the <laughs> valley as a bowl. All the cold air sinks to the bottom. Now you got an egg beater perched 20 30 feet up in the air. When it turns on that propeller, it stirs all the air up, and the air that's 20 feet above the vineyard is actually not freezing. That egg beater stirs it all up, and so the end result of the temperature is that what, what the vineyard was 29, and now it's 33, and that's pretty much the difference between freezing and not freezing.
0: It, it also explains the tasty whipped cream edge around the valley. There you go. Yeah, yeah, you a little foam find on that in wine country. Yeah. That's and, right. And then the old one was smudge pots okay you know Rick, and Rick, my wife Rick. by no, the way no no
1: no 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 I, These are not called smudge pots. They're not called smudge pots anymore. No, they are called vineyard heaters. Vineyard heaters. I like the word smudge pot. No, and in Rick, fact, no, no, we've no, decided no, we're no, going to no, no,
0: name no. our next dog Smudge Pot. Smudge Pot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, yeah. You can't I, use the phrase smudge pot. I think the pot. EPA
1: outlawed yes. using the term smudge yes, pot. Yes, they don't
0: use those things. Well, here's, the, here's the, the worst thing about smudge pots. How they worked was, they don't do them anymore, of course. They use vineyard heaters now, was that they created a cloud of smoke over a valley a vineyard right. and then it would keep the heat in. Right. And of course, the
1: smoke was warmer too. So, right. I mean, there was. It was and it also act as a heater. So, there's it, a little bit of both. So, you had heat, but you also had this, the smoke, which was kind of heavy and it held over the vineyards. Now, what you often see these days is a combination vineyard heaters and fans. Right. So, the heaters, and, and particularly when, if you remember, a, a valley is has a river flowing through it. So, there is a flow to the air. Cold air flows down a valley the right. same way a river flows down a valley. If you put your vineyard heaters on the uphill side of your vineyard and then you put the fan out in the middle, you light the vineyard heaters off, you turn the fan on, and you kind of suck that heat down across your vineyard and it warms up your vineyard. And if you're really nice, you may even warm the guy next to you. Yeah, And, you know, that's actually
0: an interesting point, too, about um, a, a vineyards in foothills or mm-hmm, in, on mountainsides mm-hmm. is that among the things that they try to do is they try to, to design them or build them so that they, the bottom is open. Right. So that the cold air flows off just like a river.
1: Well, in fact, the ancient Romans, and if you look at all the great wine regions of Europe, they were all originally planted by the ancient Romans. The reason they planted them on the slopes— was because they didn't have to worry so much about frost protection because the cold air would sink to the bottom of the valley and the vineyards up on the upper slopes would not freeze because they'd be above that.
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a, you know, once again, you know, all of the ma- the magic of farming, a pretty cool thing. There's a lot going on. We're going to talk a little bit more about farming a bit. I do want to talk about one other thing that's been sort of been going on now is the whole the notion of pruning. Uh-huh. And you know, this is again, it's the kind of thing that. You know, those of us... us this lam- is
1: not what happens to you when you spend too much time in a swimming it's, pool. You
0: know, no, it's it's the shower these days. You know, it's I just the turn the shower on, or bathtub, and I, I get all dainty. Um, <laughs> the uh, we, we tend to think when, you know, the vines are dormant in the winter or even coming into spring mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, there's not much to do, but it is. There's a winter prune, there's a spring prune, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they use it to do an, a number of things, and among the things that they can do is, is help it actually determine a little bit about when bud break's going to occur.
1: Well, in fact, pruning, I mean, if you think grapevine is... Is a vine. So everything you do in terms of viticulture has to do with understanding the vine. Vines don't produce fruit uh, at the ends of canes. They produce it back near the middle. Once you've pruned them off, that's where the, the fruit comes from. Those. Paul is waving his arms right now to
0: explain this, by the way. That's right, because my arms he, he are, he are just, like two
1: enormous vineyard cordons. He was just a Anyone who has a vine knows if you cut it back that's where it grows most vigorously off the ends. If you don't cut it back it tends yes. to shoot off it, the ends and like not a house produce plant, fruit. To be honest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So with a vineyard you want to cut it back. You want to prune it back to its to its bare trunk and a few little buds there and those buds uh, will then last year's Canes will produce the the fruit, and you can control how much fruit exactly. a vine makes. You can, right. to a certain extent, control how much foliage it produces. And the real secret to growing great grapes is to understand the vineyard site, understand the vineyard, understand the vine, understand the trellising system, and then prune so that basically the vine kind of is in perfect balance with everything that's going on. And right about the middle of September, when the sun is toasty warm in that classic Indian summer, your vineyard workers can sing, they can dance, they can play accordion music and pick the vineyard, and everyone has a wonderful time, and the grapes are perfect. I think the accordion music is only for Italian
0: varietals. (laughs) Could be. <laughs> yes. But the point there already is there's a ton of work uh, that goes into ha- managing grapevines and gra- managing vineyards at any level. We'll talk a little bit more as we go on in the show. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, we'll take some questions from listeners who have questions about us and who can blame. Who doesn't? That's right. Stay with us. <laughs> You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to open our mailbag and take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, we'll try to give it an answer. Well, we'll we'll say something about it anyway. We'll give an answer. It may not be right, but we will have an answer. We promise that. Go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul wine.
1: You know, you say it's all one word, Rick and Paul wine. It's not one word. What you're saying is there are no spaces between the letters. It's not a word. It's Rick and Paul No, wine.
0: I'm, I'm declaring it a word. Is it? And what does yes. it mean? It means uh, a brilliant wine uh, radio show is what it <laughs> means. It's a, it's a, you, Excellent. You, you look, uh, Webster's new dictionary for 2015 is going to have it's that. It's going to be in there. Yeah. I can hardly or, wait. Or maybe there'll be Wikipedia about it or something. <laughs> in any case, um, if you're new to us and you might want to know what qualifies us to answer questions, it's a question we ask ourselves all the time. But I can tell you a little bit about my friend Paul. He's a respected industry pro. He answers questions on AllExperts.com. He teaches at Abbeville College. Sometimes he teaches on cruises around the world. I'm bitter about that because I want to go on a cruise. And uh, and I'll send you on a cruise. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. know, yeah, too. Where uh, <laughs> an all-around good guy. Well, thank you. And of course, you, New York Times best-selling author, and have written a couple of books about the wine business. Longtime journalist on Capital Public Radio, talking about wine. Uh, so, lovely folks. Somebody must, must think
0: you know something. Yeah. Well, the folks here at Capital Public Radio who
1: let us use your studio clearly are very generous. Yes. So they, with, with their studio use and, and with their opinion and with their air. Yeah. All
0: right. Our well, our first question comes from. Uh, well, we have a handful of, of listener questions. That,
1: um, they are a little less generous. Ouch. Yeah. They're not mean. You know, we could cut them off, but then we wouldn't have any listeners no, at all. No, no. We, we'll take... We, we'll, it's just like,
0: just, just like me with attention. We'll take any. We'll take we'll, all we can uh, get. That's right. Our first question comes from Laurel in Pleasanton. She didn't give us her last name, and she's probably worried we'd stalk her. And yeah, frankly, she's probably smart. Yeah. We couldn't even find you, but that's all right. She says, you guys keep... This is a good question. She's actually, you know, kind of like this. She says, you guys keep talking about not bringing a wine to a restaurant that's on their wine list. Right. How do I know, she says. Why is that my responsibility? What if I just like the wine? Touche, Laurel. You're, you know, you're right. It isn't exactly
1: your—it isn't really your responsibility. We're, we're just sort of saying it's neighborly. Well, here's the deal. You shouldn't bring wine to a restaurant. Basically, you shouldn't bring wine to a restaurant. You're going to the restaurant. You're going there for them to show you a good time. You're supposed to order stuff off their menu. And that includes the wine list. So don't bring wine to a restaurant. That's, that's rule number one. Number two, then, is why would you break rule number one? And the answer is if you have something really, really special to you. And then you got to say, well, wait a minute. If I'm bringing something that's really, really special to me, it does make sense to make sure it's not on the wine list. So you can call ahead. If you're bringing something really special, you know what it is. You can call ahead and ask them. They may say, we don't have that wine, but we've got something very similar. And you can say, you know, very similar in flavor. That's great. That's just what I'm looking for. Or you can say, very similar isn't exactly the same because this is the bottle my husband bought me when he invited me to join him on that ice fishing trip in Minnesota where he proposed marriage to me. And as a result, I want this wine and I don't want anything else that tastes kind of like it yeah i'm going to disagree with paul laurel it 's okay to bring wine to a restaurant if you ask me it's a complicated
0: world we're all trying to get in and out of there as at the lowest price It depends on the restaurant for sure i i I say bring whatever you'd like however i'm going to go back to my it is considered neighborly to to if you can to not bring something that that they carry simply because you don't want them to look you don't want to look like you're just trying to undercut it. And the truth of it is it's a it's a really complicated formula for restaurants. And and Paul is right. I mean, among the things that Wait, restaurants I didn't hear that last part. It's Paul's right. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> a little louder, Rick. Paul is right about one big part, which it is is a big piece of the um the restaurant world. It's also a piece of how they, they run on profits. The truth of it is, in the restaurant world, food runs at a really, really thin margin. That's and right. And in fact, That's right. the more expensive the restaurant, the, the
1: leaner the, the margin. The less likely they're making yeah. any money on so the food. So there
0: are, and there you will find sort of the, what we call the high-check restaurants, the white tablecloth kind of restaurants. They may... may operate at like one to one and a half percent profit on food on food so they make it up on alcohol on all on all other things but certainly on beer and wine and spirits mm-hmm. and spirits mm-hmm. is the most and wine is actually the least mm-hmm. but so so they they count as that as part of the form then if you like your restaurant and you want them to stay in business and all those sorts of things you know yeah buy their wine Having said that, you know, if you want to bring your bottle, I say just
1: bring it. I'm just me. I'm going to say don't bring it, particularly if it is a well-known wine from a large producer— Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, for example, don't bring that to a restaurant. Every restaurant on the planet can carry that wine if they want to. And if they don't want to, you don't need to bring it. There's other stuff on the list. On the other hand, if you have a special bottle of something that your uncle gave you when you graduated from college and he's in town and you thought it would be fun to drink with him, bring it. And if by some odd coincidence the restaurant has that bottle on the list, you can explain the story and they'll probably be pretty good sports about it and just charge you a markup, which is called corkage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there you go. Two different opinions. Laurel, you can come to dinner with us. I'll bring some wine. You and I can
1: drink it. Paul's and, going to have to buy his. And <laughs> I will bring a very special bottle oh, of wine okay. that I will share with Laurel, but not with you, Rick, because I don't want your dumb old wine in this. Like... <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Our next one comes from Stephanie Rogers in Windsor. You keep saying red wine doesn't go with chocolate. I like chocolate in Cab. So what else did you get wrong that I should know about? That's actually very funny. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> very good, Stephanie. Excellent. Well, you know, okay, here's here's what we do say. We do say that if you love it, you're right. If you hate it, you're right. So if you happen to like Cabernet and chocolate, you just enjoy
1: yourselves. So I need to say something. I have never said that red wine doesn't go with chocolate. Oh, fine. Hang I've, me out to dry. No, no. I have said... <laughs> I don't like red wine with chocolate. <clears throat> there you go. And so Fair what enough. I'm saying Fair is enough. I don't like red wine with chocolate. I'm not going to drink red wine with chocolate. But, Stephanie, if you like red wine with chocolate, God bless you. Drink a bottle. Eat a pound. If you like that combination, you should enjoy it. And please don't take a couple of bozos like us and think that we're going to talk you out of something you enjoy. Well, I, I
0: definitely agree with you on the bozo part. But... uh <laughs> I'm going to actually be a little more strident. I think for most people, if you give yourself the opportunity to try what we always recommend, which is sweeter wines like Ports or a tawny with a, a sweeter chocolate or, or a Madeira sometimes with some of the other desserts, if you try a sweet wine with a dessert, you won't go back.
1: Rule, rule number one, if you like it, drink it. Rule number two. There's never anything wrong in the world of wine with experimenting with something new.
0: And r- rule number three, really, don't
1: take our advice. Don't take our advice <laughs> on anything. There you go.
0: We have another one. Oh, good. Because we did a great job on that one. Well, this I like this one. I, okay. remember, I remember this question. I like yep. this guy. Okay. This is from Robert Deering and Rockley. And it's kind of a longer, longer question, but I'm going to read it. You mm-hmm, had a question mm-hmm. from a guy. Remember this? A guy who left a bottle in his fridge for about six months because oh, yeah. he got it from a girly life. That's
1: right. Yes.
0: And, and the guy had asked us, is it okay to leave it in the fridge for six months? But here's, so you guys thought she might find that creepy that she still had that bottle. Well, I, I yes. so okay, I, his, fair he enough. says, I asked my wife. She said if a woman remembers what she gives a guy, she likes him. Fair enough. He should have told why her why he your w- wife never remembers yeah. anything yeah. she gives you. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so she says he should have told her he was saving it because he was hoping they could drink it together. That's my wife talking. This is Robert now. That's my wife talking. I think I agree with you guys, and it sounds creepy. <laughs> okay.
1: <clears throat> so, so, so here's my th- – here, I, I, a little bit – we need more backstory on this. We do need
0: some backstory. Because but, if the woman gave the let, guy let, the let's, – Let's recount for people who don't remember okay, the question. you do that. Which was we had, a, we had a, um, a listener who said I had a, a girl I kind of liked, a woman he kind of right. liked, had given him a bottle of wine and then didn't see each other for a while. And six months Key later – Key point didn't see each other for a long time. It was six months. It was six, six months. months. So she had given him a bottle of wine. It was in the fridge for six months. She's coming over. So they've reconnected. Yeah. And she remembered the, that there was a bottle, that bottle of wine. She remembered she would given that bottle of wine. She said, is that the wine I gave you? And he thinks, well... It's going to, I'm going to look creepy or I shouldn't have left it in there. And actually, he thought I shouldn't have left it in the refrigerator for six months. Which he's correct in thinking. Which he's correct. And so he said, no, I got it.
1: I got a new one. But she, he handled it beautifully. Yes. I got and, a new I remembered what you gave yeah. me. I got a new bottle of the same stuff. That was nicely done. So, yeah. And, and I think
0: in, in, in all accounts, he, he's, he did it well because he looked like a, right. a, a guy who kind of knew how to handle wine. But also he remembered what she gave him. Right. Right. Paul thought that she might find he's the kind of guy that would like you know get her crumbled up, thrown away napkins, and and follow her around. I thought he was a, he would have been a bit of a romantic if he had said no, I was saving
1: it. Um, yeah. If they had seen each other in the intervening months and he sort of kept the flame at least flickering a little bit, I could understand that. They didn't see each other for six months. She shows up and the bottle's still in the fridge, and he says, "I'm saving it for you." I'm sorry. That one is creepy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, see, there you go. There's a difference of opinion. And But Robert actually did have an, another. A real question. Uh, well, he had a question that I like at the end of this. He goes, so here's my other question. <clears throat> How come my wife never gives me wine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Any suggestions for a good hint? Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, yeah. in my house, of course, I buy the wine. Oh, I don't buy the wine. People give me wine all the time, so I almost never buy wine. But I'm in charge of the wine in my house. So my wife doesn't buy me wine, although I get wine for her sometimes. Uh, What would I say that would encourage some? You know, I think just conveying my delight in trying new and interesting wines would be the best hint I could get. Um, Mentioning perhaps a local storekeeper, wine shop owner who really has a good sense of the kinds of things I like and really has a sense of where I like to play in the world of wine. All of those are suggestions that I might, you know, mention in... In conversation, as important gift-giving holidays approach, Mm-hmm.
0: you know that that's. I, I, Does actually, your wife
1: ever get you wine? No, because
0: I'm like you; I'm in charge of the wine. Yeah. You know, it's the my wife has uh, the the one <laughs> the only advantage. And having married me apparently is that I can supply her with wines that she likes. And in fact I've always, I find myself, and I know that you and I have talked about this before, I find myself at professional tastings where I'm evaluating wines that I might write about them yep. that I might use them for a tasting that I do, for an event that I might do. Yep. But if I find a little wine that I know that my wife will like I put a little star on my notes and write a D. That's a Deborah one. That's a Deborah one. So wine. that's my yeah, job. That's good. Having said that I do like it when people give me wine as a gift. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, and... He's He's begging, folks. I am begging. He's begging right begging. Well, here on the air. It's, and so, right. Send I, Rick I, I wine. Love, I love Pinot Noir in Paul particular, wine. but anything unusual I will try. <laughs> but it is, it's a kind of a difficult thing to say. I do agree with that, Robert, that it's kind of hard to say, you know, if you wanted to give me a wine. So I say what you do is when you run across a wine that you like, if you're sharing with your wife, you say, you know, if you ever wanted to buy me a wine, something like this would be it. That's what well, see, said. I
1: think it's easier to do it in terms of as holidays approach. Um, you know, my birthday's coming up. You know, one of the things I'd really love is just a selection of or a couple of interesting bottles of wine. Now, using the term interesting there makes it a lot easier. Don't say, I want a couple of bottles of wines I'm really going to like. Because then there's a huge amount of pressure and, oh, my gosh, what if one of them isn't good and all that? But a couple of interesting bottles of wine. And, you know, Larry down there at the corner shop, he he has some really interesting things in there this month from southern France. Now she can just go in there and pick a couple of things and interesting bottles of wine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I, I, think that's, I think it's I,
1: worth a shot. I think it's worth a shot, too. All right. Now, one thing we should point out is you and I are different because in most of America, it is women who do the shopping, mm-hmm. and it is, as a result, women who buy most of it's the true. wine in It America. is true.
0: And, in fact, uh, most of the people in the wine business will tell you that they think that way, that yep. women, women buy most of the wine, yep. and certainly uh, particularly most of the midweek wine because right. it's the wine that goes with meals and, you know, hanging around and that sort of thing. Yep. All right. We got one, uh, one quick one. Uh, this is from Amanda Sue in Sacramento. She mm-hmm. says she's right again. Everybody's right. You call it your mailbag. Except us. You call it your mailbag. I like the questions. So this isn't a complete diss. But have you ever actually gotten any real snail mail—the kind that comes on paper? Um, <laughs> thanks for rubbing it in, Amanda. You're right. We just we we thought mail a mailbag would be a little better than. Uh, inbox would sound pretentious. Rick and Paul Wine
1: at and then a long street address followed by a city state zip code. No, no, no. Just Rick You're good to go.
0: Yeah, and you know you're right. We are. It makes us sound uncool and old. But it sounds like if we did anything else, that would it would be. We even... are
1: uncool and old. Well, that's true. So
0: that we thought we'd be honest about it. Um, we thought that well, if that's going to be the case, um, we might as well be upfront. So uh, Amanda, we're gonna we're gonna credit you with reminding us that, frankly. Um, we, we have no answer for it. We'll we, have, pa- we have to open the mail file
1: in mail the future. File, the mail slot? The mail-, the mail folder? Yeah. All
0: right. Well, that's it for questions for now. We'll have more in the second half of the show. In fact, we'll have some very bad wine writing in the second half of the show. Oh, boy. When we come right back, and if you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. We'll see you in the second half of the show. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. There it is again, those lovely calm notes. It's <laughs> time for our regular feature with some really horrible wine writing.
1: Paul. Well, you know, um, these again are from our... our. Um Our old colleague, friend, Larry Brooks, winemaker in Napa Valley, he had a couple of these. One of them I like very much. It's, um, this wine smells expensive.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that.
1: Um, now I am sure that there are women who will tell you that they can smell a perfume and say, oh, that's $650 an ounce. But, um... It's not quite so simple with wine, but I love the idea that you just smell a wine and it smells expensive.
0: Unless it smells actually like money. In fact, you can well, smell it. Or it's... the
1: interior of a Rolls-Royce.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you see, I've not seen that wine
1: description of uh,
0: uh, uh, notes of Rolls-Royce.
1: But, notes uh, of Rolls-Royce. Hints, yeah. hints nuances, nuances of Rolls-Royce. Nuances of Rolls-Royce, yeah. That's right. What have you got, Rick? You got something fun in there for uh, bad got wine a, writing? A,
0: a really, really horrible wine writing. Um, uh It just doesn't sound delicious. Tangy, minty, energetic, and vigorous. Full body with a light mouthfeel. Frisky and exciting, but calm and seductive. From a nine-month nap... (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing at the nap... ...in French and American (laughs) oak. Aromatic mid-tones lead to mild raspberry and leather elements high tone talons, and a piquant finish. Piquant finish. Which is, I think, uh, I don't think our writer actually understands that that means spicy. Spicy.
1: Yeah, a spicy finish. Yeah, I'm I'm confused about the exciting but calm, frisky. Yeah. yeah, Frisky, exciting, and calm all in the same. And then then the idea of full-bodied and light mouthfeel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because full-body means full-body, and light mouthfeel means not full-bodied.
0: It actually sounds like mouthwash, tangy and minty. Mm. It's... uh,
1: Okay, so here, okay. Clodalisterine? You're going to, you've given me the description. Uh I am reading it all through, and the only elements I see there that have anything to do with flavor whatsoever are raspberry and leather, a little bit of tannin, and it says that it's aged in French and American oak. So the question is, what wine is it?
0: Yes, and actually, there is another word that is sometimes used with this varietal. There is, huh? Yeah. And well, it's, you know, it's rare, but it shows up, um, um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's one of the words I
1: didn't like. Well, I'm going to go with, because of raspberry, which is a lighter-colored fruit, I'm going to go with Pinot Noir. Cabernet Cabernet because um, of the mintiness, yep, yep yeah, yep, yep, yeah. that was it, yeah, yeah, tangy, tangy you know what yeah. if you wanted me to not drink a glass of Cabernet, uh, I think so too, start the description with the word tangy, yeah, yeah, tangy Cabernet, yeah, I, it is not I'm, what the astronauts drank when they were on their way to the moon I am
0: telling you Clade Listerine sounds better
1: <laughs> all right,
0: that is our bad wine writing, and we are moving right on to. Another one of our favorite segments, uh, our history segment. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Yes, yes, the trumpets. I love
1: those trumpets. Me too. It means it's, we are going back to yesteryear. So what do you got for us? Well, you know, we were talking about vineyards earlier. And if you look at most of the great vineyard sites in Europe, they are on rocky hillsides above rivers. And you might wonder why that is. And the answer is actually it was the ancient Romans who, when they arrived in various parts of Europe, they had a couple of problems. First of all, they had to provide wine to their troops because the troops couldn't drink the water. It would kill them. So they provided wine to the troops as their beverage of choice. And then they had to plant this, but they didn't want to plant it in the rich bottomland of the rivers, not only because if you were in the bottomland, the vines froze, but also because that bottomland was used to produce wheat, which is bread, which they also needed. So they always planted them on hillsides above the rivers. And if you look around the Rhine, the Rhone River, Bordeaux, Rioja, all of these regions were planted originally by the Romans to supply their centurions with the grapevines and ultimately the wine they needed to continue to make the world safe for Pax Romana.
0: Yeah. Well, as they say, an, an army uh, travels on its wine cache, uh, on, I its, guess. on its wine bag. Yeah. That's yeah, right. That's right. Mine goes back to the year 1098, which is— the I remember it well. Yeah, yeah. It just se- seems just like yesterday. It was the founding of the Cistercian order of mm-hmm. monks, mm-hmm. Um, and they were a particularly devout group. They, were, um, they had broken off from the Benedictines and, and were dissing them for living lives of comfort. The Benedictines were having too much fun. That's the problem, at least according to the Cistercians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so their emphasis was on manual labor, and of course in those days um, manual labor was um, farming. Right. Uh, clearly we would not have been good members of the Cistercians. No, we would have been Benedictines. Yeah, we were much more of the hanging out and not working. Um, what, so what they did is they cleared a lot of fields, they drained swamp, they raised sheep and cattle and orchards, and they but their specialty was vineyards. They planted mm-hmm. lots of vineyards. Mm-hmm. They were in Burgundy, and what made them unusual was, unlike most others at the time— they, one, didn't mix other crops in with their grapes. They just basically grew grapes on their good mm-hmm, land, mm-hmm. and they kept them separate, and they monitored them. Mm-hmm, I mean, there's mm-hmm. assertions. What else they have to do, right? Life is about, is about farming now. So. Well,
1: and bear in mind that in those days, the only people who were literate were the monks. Nobody else could read or write. And all the ancient agricultural texts from my friends, the right? Romans who planted all those vineyards, the only people who could read them were the monks who could read the Latin. All right? So, and, and their uh, part of the,
0: their calling was to do, to do what they did and to do it well. And so, what they did was they really meticulously recorded what, recorded what they planted, what did well wear, what grapes did well mm-hmm, where. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They wrote them down. And when they found really special spots, they built stone walls around them and they called yes. it a, cl-
1: a clo. A clo. A clo, is, which yep.
0: means an enclosed or cloistered vineyard.
1: Right. A walled vineyard.
0: Yeah. So, and so, we now called many things a clo. Um, and their most famous, by the way, is Clove Vougeot, which right. is um, which is really a very famous Burgundy vineyard.
1: Yep. Yeah? And and what's interesting is this ultimately, by the way, um, is part of a much bigger story, Rick, because in those days the this it, so was the Middle Ages, and the rulers of the Middle Ages were famous for doing all sorts of horrible things to people. They were pretty much um, their, their, you know, both judge and executioner right there on the spot to anybody who lived within their duchy or their county or whatever it was. And so as a result, when they, um, when they went to confession, they had a lot of stuff to deal with. And the monks rather interestingly started working these deals in the Middle Ages where if you gave the local religious order a nice vineyard, you got to keep some of the wine for your own production. But they would take over the management of the vineyard. They were the best farmers in town. They were the best winemakers in town. And as a result, this this indulgence process where you gave a gift to the church and in the meantime, the church gave you basically everlasting um, e- e- eternal salvation—that was what ultimately led to Martin Luther and the Reformation of the Church. And don't you know that changed the world just about every way you can think of?
0: And there you go, wine, 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 wine is wine everywhere. Is, wine is everywhere. I actually do like the the simple, the simpler notion that um, you know, if you you made a wine a good wine deal, you get everlasting salvation. I, You've been working on that, one, been, haven't you? I've been trying that. Yeah, you know, so I, I am I'm completely for that. <laughs> You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Uh, When we come back, we're going to go to our mailbag, mail slot, inbox. Mail folder. A mail folder. Our mail folder. I like that. Maybe that's what it is. And by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question, you can. Just go to rickandpaulwine.com. We will be right back. Stay with us. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open our mail thing, whatever it is. <laughs> no, 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 no. That does not sound good at all. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> no, no. All right. Our, our mail... Uh, Folder. Uh, yeah. I, was, I had other, other <laughs> bad things, too. Uh, let's just take a question. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. This is from Josh Panay in Sacramento. Okay. This says, what's
1: tawny mean? And what makes a tawny port a tawny port? A great question. Yeah. Tawny is actually a color. And it means a sort of uh, golden brown. And you know that there are actresses who are famous for their tawny tresses. So that's where you get the tawniness. Uh, what makes a tawny port is that the wine is aged in barrels, not in bottles, but in barrels, for five-plus years until the color begins to turn tawny. Tawny. The red pigment drops out, uh, the color gently oxidizes, and it becomes this sort of golden brown color. And that's why it's called a tawny port. And and technically, according to the Port Wine Institute, there aren't actual regulations for exactly how many years you need to... This is the cool part of it, right? So you'll find tawny ports in like 10 years,
0: 20 years, 30 years. But what it is, and I love this, it is an average of the age of what the wine tastes like. Right. It's not the actual average of Of the the age of the wine. It's the average of what they think the wine tastes like.
1: Given that you and I are regularly... Um, accused of being rather immature we would take it'll take us a long time yes, to reach the right. tawny we, port if we, stage yeah,
0: the average of the age that we act like Paul I think is six <laughs> so we would not ever qualify as a tawny and, and you know and what they are they're great I love tawny ports actually really one of one of you know if there's one of those like it's a happy night I'm having a dessert wine that's yep. almost always the thing I love to get yep. and they're rich
1: they're nutty beautiful wines oh, they're and great. fabulous and then, fabulous on their own fabulous with cheese <laughs> wonderful with um, any sort of nutty uh, or, or pecan uh, pie, yeah, fruit yeah. Cake. Another thing I like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tiny ports are. What ooh. time is it? We need to get some of this I stuff I know, I'm getting hungry.
0: All right, oh, we have another question, and it is vineyard related, since so we've been talking a little about vineyards today. It's from Terry Schmidt in Oakley. The back label of a bottle I got said their grapes are picked by hand. I think they meant, I think they were implying lovingly by bunnies and unicorns or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, they were bragging for sure. Is picking grapes
1: by machine bad?
0: That's a good question.
1: It's a great question, and there's all sorts of arguments about it. Boy, you going to get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm a, not touching this with the ten foot well, Paul. I will give you both sides of the issue briefly. Okay, and then I will. Uh, I will. You know, I'm. I'm going to probably agree with Paul on this. One. Oh you well. Go ahead. Okay. So. Picking grapes by hand means you got somebody going down the line, yanking the grapes off the vine and dumping them into a a bin underneath their feet. It's really hard work. I don't know. It is really hard work. Anybody who's done it more than about a half a day who didn't have to do it because they needed the work. Um, And theoretically, the guys going down or the women going down these grapevine rows are picking only the perfect bunches, which, of course, human error. You know, you can get good crews. You can get bad crews. When you bring a new person into a picking crew, one of the things you have to do is sit down with them at the first couple and, of boxes and, and say, right. you know, I don't want this kind or this kind. You leave those back on the vine. Don't be picking any second crop and just trying to fill your bucket. And here. not
0: to be taking shots at vineyards crews, but they're paid by the, the Often they, they are paid by, paid by, by the yeah.
1: total weight they pick. Right. So, so the more grapes they pick, the more they get paid. Right. The unicorns and the bunnies,
0: on the other hand, they just get paid an hour. They work the wage. for free. Yeah. Oh, they I, th- they get, I thought they get
1: food. Like carrots. They get grapes. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, bunnies... They eat the, the grapes. They do yeah. eat the grapes. Those, those stupid now, bunnies. machine harvesting in the old days used to be exclusively in big mechanized vineyards where they just shook the living daylights out of the vine and picked everything. These days, machine harvesters are significantly more sophisticated. And in a lot of cases, when you pick a bunch of grapes, you will discover that on every bunch, there will be everything from perfectly ripe grapes to grapes that are a little too ripe and a little moldy, or you'll get grapes that are a little green and not quite ripe enough. The machine harvesters these days can actually be adjusted so they shake the vine just enough well, to get only the ripe grapes. Right. So, now, I was going
0: to say explain that what they do is they shake the they vine. They shake the and vine. The,
1: but they don't shake them so violently so the no. grapes that fall off are, are the, the ones that are ready to go, as it were, ready to be plucked. Right. So is it better or worse? Really depends on what kind of wine you're making. If you're making a hundred and fifty dollar bottle of Napa Valley Cabernet, you probably better be drinking. And, but not only picking your grapes, but then you're going to put yeah, them on sort a sorting of, table yeah. later and go through. And pick out. Although
0: they have some machine sorters now, that, that they do, they're even more accurate than people. If
1: you're making Sauternes in France, the great dessert wine, you literally go through the vineyard three, four, five, seven, twelve times, and you only pick individual grapes. Right. You don't even pick right. the bunches.
0: Imagine that, and Sauternes, and especially the, the really high-end ones. That there's a reason why they are very expensive wines. Imagine that that you go through a vineyard and you pick grape by grape.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't. It's hard to do that with a, the the grapes in your refrigerator that you bought at the supermarket. Actually, I do that all the time. I go through and I just pick the ones on top, and I leave the rest for somebody See, else. I was wondering why I keep seeing grapes that are half of the half-eaten <laughs> bunches. That explains a lot. That's Paul. right. So the answer to your question, nice and simple, is if you're eating if you're eating a pasta dinner and you're having a $20 bottle of wine, whether those grapes were picked by hand or machine, actually that's kind of a hard question as to which would be the better tasting wine. And a lot of wineries use both. By the time you're spending the big bucks for a really expensive bottle of wine, those wines are almost certainly picked by hand. But that's at the very top end. And frankly, they're using sorting tables to pick through the fruit a second time and it's a pretty different proposition.
0: Yeah, and it, you know we've talked once um, we should probably do another show talking a little bit more about sort of the costs of wine and why why things are expensive and and you know yep. there's there's sort of a circularity to those $100 bottle of wines I thought you were
1: going to say we should do another show not about wine because we're not very good at it.
0: Actually, well next week you know by the way is uh, St. Patrick's Day we're going to be doing some beer. Oh,
1: excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent.
0: But we've talked about costs of wine and the sort of circularity of a $100 bottle of wine is that one You really... Can't get away with a hundred dollar bottle of wine if you did machine harvest simply because you you can't you need to say that you hand picked. you need to say you hand
1: picked. So, yeah. but but and yeah. but it as does also
0: to, raise the costs. As
1: you need to say that you handcrafted the you wine. You handcrafted, yes. Right, if everything you, has to be hand done in wine because that's how the wines are made. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't yeah. get us started. We have uh, we have in the past, we will in the
0: future made fun of the term handcrafted. Yes. In any case, so that's the answer, Terry. Um, the bunnies and the unicorns—they pretty much ate the grapes. The machines and the hand handyard And the unicorns are, kept
1: poking the vineyard workers in the yeah, butt and they didn't like that. Get part rid of, the of problem. those horns. That's
0: part of the problem. Okay, we have one more. This is from uh, Jonathan Akers in Eldorado Hills. Mm-hmm. This is another vineyard question and it's also a good one. When I'm in Napa, the vineyards all seem to be so neat and tightly trimmed. And in the foothills around here, they're a lot more bushy. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Is that because the grapevines are different they just spend more time trimming in Napa. Both. It's both,
1: yeah. It is yeah. both, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in Napa these days, it's almost uh, what seventy percent of the vines in Napa are Cabernet, and they're absolutely hand manicured to grow very intensely flavored Cabernet grapes. So relatively low yields, completely in balance, everything very carefully controlled. In what he's talking about the El Dorado Hills and what he must drive through in the it's Central Valley. It's the head Valley. trains, and yeah, the, and Zin, are, the Zin fields probably. Oh, yeah. and if there's yeah. Zinfandel up in El Dorado Hills, that's a very well, like old El, Yeah, El Dorado County right sure. above him, sure. That's yeah, a, absolutely, that's, yeah. a, that's an old Zinfandel area, and right. those vines are the old style, very much what is called California Sprawl, because mm-hmm. the vines go everywhere, uh, which makes better wine depends on what you want to drink. Well, there's two, uh, there's other reasons
0: too. You know, those, the reason why if you, you see those beautifully, I mean, they really are spectacular. Look at the vineyards in Napa, but among the reasons they're that way is because um, they do get fog, and so the breezes also help dry out the grapes. You know, mm. There's the rows in between. In the foothills, among other things, is that the, they're a little leafier kind of coverage because they get a lot more sun.
1: They get more sun, and when it does cool off, it's because of elevation. They're up in the air right. rather than that they're down in the fall. Right, fog. so
0: they don't have moisture issues. Um, but also, yep. but Zinfandel grapes grow with That's different right. kinds of vineyards, and it's... Yep. Um, so it's all those things.
1: So it's you know, different kinds of grapes, it's different kind of trellising system, and Frank it's different kind of business models for the wineries. Right, right. All of that. Yeah, and it is um, it is fun. But the old one of the
0: things is that those old old vines are almost they're you know often going to be some of the vines are yep. always going to look like those big yep. bushels. And I think they uh, they are spectacular. Yeah. And when you see them in the winter, they look like a witch's hand coming out of the ground. It's yep. very cool. Yep, very cool. All right, we are closing up the mail slot inbox um, <laughs> and our mailbag all at the same time. If you'd like to ask us a question about wine or really anything. Give it a try at rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And when we come back, we will have a food pairing for you. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And as we do every week, or almost every week, we have a a food and wine pairing. We think food and wine uh, belong together. Like a hand in a glove. Like a hand in a glove. Yes, which one's the hand? The food. I think it's the one. Yeah. All right. Okay. Good. Now, yeah, right. anyway, we've been talking about vineyards, so I thought we would discuss what goes good with stuffed grape leaves. What are you stuffing Do- them Doma. with? Well, is I'm going the classic, the dolma, right? So it's right. got the rice and the little tan herbs, a little bit, of land. little bit of lemon sometimes. Okay. You know, so a little tangy, a little rich.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's uh... so. why would you drink anything other than a classic wine from that region of the world like Assyrtiko from Greece? Assyrtiko from Fresh, Greece. Fresh, yeah. lively, bright, delicious, has a little bit of that same lemony part to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you wanted to go in the other direction, a red wine, I would look at some of the somewhat more rustic reds from Turkey, which also makes fabulous grape leaves. There's some argument in that part of the world about who owns everything, and Turks will say grape leaves are Turkish, not Greek. And I love the idea that you sit down and you have some grape leaves and you have a bottle of whether it's a Sirtiko or something from Turkey, and you can imagine that you are with who with with uh, maybe you, looking... Homer listening to oh, him I was, tell the story? I, I, of was how... think, I was thinking
0: of some Greek starlet. Is uh, yeah? No, I'm <laughs>
1: thinking of how uh, Homer could could tell the story of the fall of Troy, and you're eating the grape leaves and you're drinking the wine, and and the, just wondering how how amazing Brad Pitt was in that war. <laughs> yes, and he's still doing. Okay. And he's still doing well. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now I'm going. I suppose I could really uh, bend sideways and say that I've, I'm linking to the food stuff because there's some lamb in there. But actually, okay. I'm, I'm going with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc.
1: Uh-huh, yeah, okay. Uh,
0: the grassiness and the, and the brightness and pe- yep. picking up a uh, little bit of the spice. Um, well, and
1: of course, you know, some of the Greek wines blend Assyrtiko with Sauvignon Blanc in a really nice way too. So that's a that's another option in that direction. Yeah, yeah.
0: Y- yeah and you know, Assyrtiko is, a, speaking of vineyards, it's a pretty unusual vineyard sort of arrangements. Yes. That they look like um because they grow on a windy sunny sunswept wind-swept, and windswept yeah that's um, a lot of swept's going on they actually <laughs> they they grow at sort of knee high birds nest looking kinds of vineyards they make the vines into this circle the circle might be oh, you know, a foot or two across, mm-hmm. and and the grapes all grow in the middle of that, mm-hmm. and so it keeps a little bit of the evaporation, you know, the, mm-hmm. and it keeps a little bit of the wind off of the grapes, and it mm-hmm. looks mm-hmm.
1: like no other kind of vineyard in the world. And in the ancient world, the wines of Santorini were considered the greatest wines in the world. Mm-hmm. Santorini, the island, blew up as a volcanic explosion, but it's been replanted. They're making wines there again. <laughs> Check
0: them out. Yeah, you know, uh, as you say, we ought to do. We ought to do an episode on Greece. I have uh, recently. I've done some tasting. What I have with, to sing at all? Uh, we'll dance. We'll dance. Dance. Um, okay. But I've recently sort of tasted through some a handful of different uh, Greek wine tastings, mm-hmm. and they're really great wines. And Greek yep. wines are, are coming back. Greek is hot, and um, Greece is hot. Greece is hot. Well, Greek hot wines. Greece. Yeah, the Greek they've got, uh, and you know, we, maybe we should all be buying uh, Greek wines to help. Bail out a country, that is <laughs> poor in economy, financial need, because yes. um, frankly, that's that's where we're at. You know, before we go, because because we've been talking vineyards, yeah. and we're moving in. You know, we were talking about this notion of you know what they do with the the Santorini where they they bend the vines, right? You know, and we we're talking about these different right. sorts of of. Of vines, so you know one of the questions that I often get is, you know, how important are the are the leaves? Do they trim them back because they want less energy, or they want
1: more energy? Well, the basic. The basic analysis is that a leaf is like a factory, and it produces the energy of the vine that then ripens the grapes. So you need to have the grapes and leaves in balance. As long as you've got the right number of leaves to the right number of grapes, you will be okay. What you don't want to do is get to the end of the season and see the grapes aren't ripe and the leaves are already falling off the vine. There's no solution there. The other thing you don't want to do is you don't want to end up with so many leaves and not very many grapes. The grapes get ripe very quickly. And you end up with vines, the grapes that don't have a lot of flavor or character. So the whole secret to pruning a vineyard and growing grapes is that balance, right balance. between the factory and the end product. Which goes to the, back to that point that farming is
0: difficult. So you've got, you know, you don't want you, you you need to have the right amount of grapes, you need that right amount of leaves, and and it you can't just sort of say, well, look, I want my grapes to be really good. We're going to have as many little energy engines. As possible,
1: because right. that's it, right. It's not working. In fact, and in fact, early in the season, when the grapes produce a lot of leaves, uh, they don't produce grapes if they have too many leaves, because the vine doesn't see any need to produce grapes. It thinks it's going to grow forever, just growing great. Right.
0: Grape. It wants and it wants to grow leaves. It does. That's that's what they do. And yep. the grapevines are now. Here's the thing: they're vines. They're vines. And so their sort of natural instinct is to crawl and, and reach and have more leaves and, and reach up to the sun, sort of like us. That's us. We reach to the sun. Uh, that's uh, well, or something Thing like that. That's it for another round of bottle talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Piccini. As always, thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. And thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question for next week's show, uh, give us a shot at Rick and Paul Wine, all one word, rickandpaulwine.com. You can find us on iTunes and you subscribe for free, one little click. And if you learn anything today, we hopes that we hope it is this that growing grapes and farming is not for sissies, and that's why you don't see us doing it. I'm Rick Gushman. And I'm
1: Paul Wagner.
0: And remember, the best wines you drink with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.